Well, welcome to the George Lynch Hunting Podcast, brought to you by Legendary Gear, the game call company that is legend by design. Well, folks, uh, a lot of through our podcast, I do a lot of instructionals. We do things on, in my opinion, on calling and, and hunting setups. We talk about turkey, deer, waterfowl. But uh, once in a while, we get some great people, some great friends that uh, on our shows to talk about uh, our past and who we were and where we are today. And today is one of those guests, the guy that I've known for 35 years, like we said, probably at least him and his family. And I would say that him and his dad were a big inspiration to me uh, into waterfowl hunting and um, and where he's at today. I'm so proud of him, and, and he's recognized as probably one of the elite uh, premier outfitters in the country. And um, I'm just proud to call him my friend. So today we have Brad Albeck of Albeck Adventures. Welcome aboard, Brad. Thanks, George. Glad to be a part of it. Yeah, I am too. We we go back a long ways, and you're this young kid, and your dad was was uh, best way to explain George Albeck, folks, is that uh, you take a ball of energy that was like this, and you compressed it to this right here, and George was one of those guys that was just full of life, always always upbeat, always funny, and always competitive. And I think that instilled into you and, and stuff. But I can remember in the days, early days, back years ago in Michigan, um, you know, I was deer hunting. It, it, the, the waterfowl hunting to me was, um, it wasn't the big passion that I have today. And, and But Brad, you and your dad were, were the first people that I got to know and become friends that were truly hardcore waterfowlers. I mean, deer hunted, you guys deer hunted, but you were without a doubt um premier duck and goose goose hunters and and you guys did your small game and everything but you were definitely the guys that i knew in michigan that i first met was like wow these guys are hardcore and uh you were guys that i i got to team up and learn a lot from and and, and sit back and observe and and um help me guide me in my direction but uh why don't you talk about a little bit of your past and beginning you and your dad and how you got started in the waterfowl well my dad came out of illinois and uh he was always a big pheasant hunter and a rabbit hunter and and we moved to southeast michigan in adrian there and uh the the pheasants really took a bad decline from uh the clean fence rows and the chemicals and there just wasn't very many pheasants so his boss jerry gordon got him into duck hunting on, on lake st Clair. And then uh, he'd save up money, and we bought a, a what was that sporting goods place? Fitzgerald's on the east side of Tecumseh. Yeah, and Tecumseh. Yeah, a million years ago, and he bought two dozen Terry Light duck decoys, and then we had to save up our money for another two floating Canadian goose decoys. <laughs> and now, George, I'm looking out the window. I have 24-foot, 16-foot, 16-foot, 12-foot trailers full of full-body decoys now. Oh, my gosh. I mean, the spreads. Yeah. Uh, I mean, but, compare Let's talk about the waterfowl hunting back then. I mean, to me, the, the terminology of back in the old days of waterfowl hunting was that you hunted waterfowl in water. And I remember that... Uh, Back in the early days, you know, we the first early season, the first late season, you know, then that's when I really started coming in and getting involved in it. 
So I was more integrated into uh, field hunting, you know, and um, the water hunting I did is when I started guiding uh, from Knutsons and stuff like that. And, of course, then that's when you had zinc, you had foils, you had grounds, you had all the guys, uh, Alabama and all these guys that came up and guided. Um, And then so we got to hunt the water spots with the spots that they had leased. But, you know, field hunting was my first going in and so that was kind of a little bit i would say a different perspective when you guys started because waterfowl hunting the duck hunting was done on water and to see where that's at where that started and then to see the transition today um i mean it's it's really it's do you think it's a good thing in a bad way i look at together but and um do you think sometimes that that we miss the internship like you when we started you know and you started there was an internship there was stuff we did one thing i will say back in the day i think that we were really uh creative you had to be creative because we didn't really have the products like you said i mean you saved your money to get two loose decoys so you really had to utilize how you set yourself up your calling technique your calling you know i don't think calling was the um more of a contest it wasn't none of that was ever entered your mind every day was whatever i could do to sound more like a duck or sound like a goose but i could kill more ducks and geese and um you know i just remember back in the day we were trying to create everything from our blinds to you know how we set up and spots that we got and i mean what i mean you, now you're looking at like you said when you started then you're looking at today with four or five trailers full of, of duck and goose decoys and clearly you're at a different level today but do you think a lot of these young kids today are missing that internship? Most most definitely. I mean, from even our clothing that we wore back then, we didn't have the, the waterproof stuff, the, the chest waders, George. Remember how paper thin they were? Oh my you gosh. couldn't wait to get out of that water. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, I mean, yeah. That's true. I remember my dad, my dad had an acquaintance that worked on the power lines and he brought home those insulated rubber gloves to pick up decoys and he was so he was like Bradley Bradley look at these look they're waterproof and they're warm it's amazing George you're waterproof and warm <laughs> yeah you know, if if you ever picture Joe Pesci, if you ever watch Home Alone and Joe Pesci, you'd think of George Albeck because they had to be somewhere. There's got to be a bloodline that connects there because that's who I always said George <laughs> Joe Pesci was a George Albeck. But you're right. I mean, we looked at I wore Carhartts. I mean, I had to save money in my first get a Columbia jacket, and that was like you're the man. You're really getting into waterfowl if you bought a Columbia jacket. And uh, <laughs> For uh, what was it like 160, 180 for that quad parka? And yeah. you, like you said, man, you were top shelf with that. And you nowadays, were. they're spending $800 on a coat, $1,000 on a pair of chest waders. Exactly. Yeah. And, and you're right. And, and if I look at today, and it's one of the things I commented. Is, you know, people say, what's the big difference? And, you know, they talk about decoys or they talk about calls. And I said, for me, when I get the older age, I said so the clothing, you know, with Gore-Tex and what Gore's come out with and, and stuff like that, me being able to withstand being out in the cold elements, because to me, my favorite hunting is in when the weather is the most inclement, when it's bad. You know, I love hunting. It's one thing I do miss from Michigan. I do love, I miss the late season goose. 
I loved it when laying out there in the snow and laying getting them honkers, especially when the snow was kicking and then birds come in. But uh, it was definitely the clothing because I was able to withstand being a younger guy. Like you said, I can remember guiding, sitting in the freaking standing in that water the whole time, you know, wearing and your feet are about numb and you're cold, but you keep going. And because, you know, the fight's going to come and there's going to be another fight come in and um, guns and all that stuff. We never made excuses. I mean, any gun, I mean, I killed a ton of stuff with an old Remington 870 and never mm -hmm. even questioned what gun I was shooting. You know, I didn't get enough geese because I didn't have the right gun. It's, um, we definitely come more commercial and more uh, in that aspect in the hunting. And uh, I just remember, dude, watching you when we used to hunt there on, on Lock Aaron, that it was awesome because you had set up, you had your setup. But you were very orchestrated and working that goose call and working those geese in. You know, you sit there and I'm I'm learning and, you know, we were in the short reads uh, in, in the day of the short read. But you're still, you know, your favorite, I believe, was the Shawman flute that yes. you ran today. Yeah. And you just, you just had a way you orchestrated your rhythm and that sound that you were just mesmerized to get those geese in. And it was, uh, it was a thing to watch. And I think that had a lot to do with your success and scouting. I mean, we, we put on miles back then scouting and, you know, the, the cool and probably the benefit for us. And I can remember, especially in those early and late goose seasons, when they first came in, getting access to hunt, you know, you knocked on a farmer's door and said, Hey, uh, can I go out and shoot those geese come in your field? And he looked down, kill the dang things. You know, it, it was, it wasn't a problem. Today, you know, it's leases, and if you don't have a lease, if you're in the strong area with a lot of birds, now Southern Illinois always probably had that because they were always the mecca, and you know, people wanted that. But during throughout the whole Midwest, you didn't see that as much, and you didn't see as many the outfitters, you know. But I can remember, you know, we didn't have the money, but driving around and and a beat up truck and knocking on farmers' doors and and early and late season, man, it was no problem getting on. And that's totally changed. And that was a beautiful thing back then, probably for us. But um, it's a big, different game, especially down there in Oklahoma. I'm sure where you're at, that it's it's a, it's a, that outfitting is a game. That's what you're dealing with. It is, you know, the last ten years in Oklahoma is it's gotten really, really bad. Um, you know, I don't mind outfitters as long as they're good outfitters. But they, you know, it seems like somebody will pop up. And even though you've leased the ground, you've leased it for ever, they'll try to come on in and give the farmer more money. And the farmer and you have a good relationship, but he, he doesn't really want to lose the money. So then it costs me more money to keep that ground. And they're here for two, three, four years, and then they just disappear. And then, George, here comes five more other outfitters. You know, that's a great point. That's probably one of the things I was talking about, the internship. You know, there's no way that when I first started, you know, working on getting a goose call, okay, and I got to where, hey, man, I can start calling these things in and killing them. But there was no way in my head would I ever think about, you know, I'm going to take people's money 
and go out there and and with you i mean you put years in you started man as, as, as soon as you were able to walk almost hunting and you had a dad that got you and pushed you and and like i said you went through and you became a, a heck of a duck and goose caller heck of a duck and goose hunter before you even got into outfitting Today, it seems like there's so many young two who are learning off social media. They think they're learning off social media. They're learning just a little bit, um, and they are coming instant outfitters. And I hear the horror stories of guys that have gone places, you know, and, and booked hunts with guys who, kids who snuck on other people's releases and took people's money. And, and it just seems like everybody, if they can run a duck or goose call and get a trailer decoys, they're all outfitting. And that's the tough thing that we're competing with today, um, you know, more so for you than I hear in, in Iowa. But uh, anywhere that's known in the, in the country, it's got lots of ducks and geese. It, it's it's going to have the pressure, and it's people that I don't think are qualified outfitters that are trying to jump in. And like you said, you don't have a problem with good outfitters; it's the bad ones. And, you know, and what's that old saying? One good thing out does five, six good things. One bad thing out does good six good things. So. Um, well, that's... you know, my theory is, is they save their money. I mean, the economy's tight this year. I mean, and some of these are, you know, we're getting towards Christmas times and I'll hear a father that, Hey son, this is, this is going to be your Christmas present. And if they get with bad outfitters, no big deal to them. But to right. us, it, it, it is a big deal. And not everybody's, you know, George, you have bad days. I've had bad days. I still have bad days. Yep. You know, you, you, you think that they're going north and they go west. It happens. How many times have you set up on a turkey and you think he's going to fly down and walk right into your decoy, turkey hunt? <laughs> and he's on and, the other he, and he goes the other way. But it, yeah. it happens. Exactly. But, um, <clears throat> I've actually will pull the dad off to the side or, you know, they'll pay the money. And I'll look at that kid, and I'll peel off, you know, the dad's money, and I'll hand it to him. I go, hit him on the shoulder and go, here, go get your kid a, a good Christmas present. Wow, you, know, it, yeah. you know, it's it's not his fault that the wind blew 50 miles per hour in Oklahoma that day. But, you know, I try to have a conscience. I, I always said, you know, if I went, if you guided me on a turkey hunt and, uh, you know, we, we had an opportunity I missed. Like, yeah, I'll pay you right up front, you know. But it's just trying. I think a lot of these guys just don't try. I agree with that. And, and you said something in a conversation we had, uh, I don't know, months ago. But it, to me, I thought it was a very um, – it showed who your character was. And, and – and, and we both have been on hunts where you guided people and you had great shoots. And, you know, there's some guys you can't kill. it. They shoot their limit and they shot it quick. They couldn't kill enough. And those kind of guys, that when it gets done, you know, they're, they're walking away and you're looking, well, excuse me, sir. You know, the work is we got to clean these things. And uh, some of these guys, they don't want to clean them. They just want to come and shoot and kill them. And they think they pay their money. But you made a comment to me that it's important to you that you make sure those clients say, hey, we're going to clean these birds. And we're not just going to shoot these things and waste them, you know. And and I thought that was uh, a great, you know, testament of your character of, uh, you know, sure, you got to, you know, we got to kill the birds. That's how we make our money. And the better these guys shoot, you know, have shoots and the more they kill, the more that uh, 
it helps in, in, in your revenue, what you get, but you still, even when it comes to money, you got to have that ethical, uh, moral objective in your heart that, hey, this is a resource that we're not going to disrespect. And when you talked about that, how you approached some of your clients and said, hey, you know, we're gonna, you're going to clean these birds and help clean these birds anyway. And I just thought that was awesome. You, you got to. I mean, that's just a respect for the wildlife. Yeah, and that's just being a good hunter. I think that is a great testimony, like you said, to the young kid who came. At uh, you know, Dad took him on a good hunt, and and um, we shot the birds. But we're this outfitter is also teaching them that hey, this is part of the hunt is is actually preparing the table fare and taking care of the resource that we get. And I just I remember you said that, and you know, you have a great reputation throughout the whole country. Um, that people usually know if they're going to hunt with you the day in day out that you produce pretty good and or you wouldn't be in the position you're in and, and the success you've had but with all that said you know you still put high priority and i salute you i mean kudos to that because in this industry you know even people i, I respect as good hunters don't always put the that part as a as part of the importance of the hunt you know and it's and it's a great thing to do that because it seems like the emphasis today, and I'm not trying to bash young guys and I'm trying to bash social media. I mean, there's good and, and bad points, but to me, it's way beyond having big groups so we can put big piles and you know, and just getting pictures to put on social media. After that picture's taken, there's more work to be done, you know. And I think these kids today think that it's just. A, who can get put the most big picture, you know, most pictures of, of big piles of birds. And you know, George, I'm sorry to interrupt, but uh yesterday, yesterday we were about 90, 93 dead birds by 8 30 in the morning. Canadian geese and a few white rosses. And the birds kept coming. They kept coming. And I looked around and I said, uh, I think they had enough today, fellas. And you know, we have an eight bird Oklahoma Canadian Gooseland. Wow. I don't need to kill eight birds to make everybody happy, George. I like to kill four or five birds. You know, why do you got to have, and we had 14, 15 guys in the blind, 16. I mean, we, we put up a five uh, front, five back panel blind, dome up, get it dark with the grass, TP it up, and uh, we were in a dirt field. And uh, one guy, I was like, you know, they had enough. And one guy was like, what's the limit? I said, well, the state limit is eight. But, you know, we got about five. Majority of us have five. A couple guys have six birds. But, well, why can't we shoot more? I said, because I may need them tomorrow. That's right. And you, and you guys got a long drive home. You're not leaving all these geese for a tip for me, fellas. You're going to have to clean them, you know? Absolutely. And then, you know, you, you guys probably want to get a sandwich, and uh, we get you on the road by noon, you know? And they still yeah. had a heck of a, had a heck of a shoot, you know? Oh, yeah. You, you brought up a good, another point. I'm just going to kind of get into, because um, I know how tough it is uh, for me. I mean, I was always, you know, the four or five guys that we guided and if we had eight or ten guys, I would freak out because, you know, I was always worried about the safety aspect because you've seen so many different things of people. And it just takes – there's only one mistake with a gun. And um, 
So when you're hunting with that many guys, tell me what your safety regimen is and how you start to hunt with those guys. And what do you say to those guys that, I mean, some tips that to, to the to new outfitters who are listening, who are going to be watching, things that you put as your top priority. This is one of the first things we're going to adjust, boys, before we get in the field. What is your speech in the morning? Well, it's a we call it a come to Jesus meeting, or a good old-fashioned Brad Albeck pep talk. <laughs> okay, <laughs> fellas, get it to None of this three and nine. <laughs> you know what I mean, George? Well, absolutely. You know, don't stand up, you know, if we're hunting out of layout blinds. You know, when there's hunters out in front of you or a dog, you know, after we shoot, you know, some of us are going to go out there and pick them up. I don't want all gun barrels up in the air. I don't want to hear chambers opening. I don't want to hear chambers closing. The two most common reasons why a gun goes off is loading and unloading. George, we've had a bunch of close calls. Everybody has. Sure. Um, I, you know, it was cold out. Um, had a flock of geese coming in, and uh, the guy, you know, we put the guns on the outside, and, you know, in between your legs, and then shut the Rogers Goosebusters, and we got grass. He blew the grass off the end of his blind. Wow. It was like confetti. And, 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 you know, I pop up, I go, what happened? Keep calling, keep calling. I said, no, what happened? Was it a gun malfunction or was it an accident? I need to know. Because if it's a gun malfunction, you need to get that gun out of this line. Take mine. Take one of my helper's guns. We do this every day, mister. It's not a big deal to us. But if it's an accident, I'm sure it scared you to death. And it scared us all. We're going to be a little bit more safer. Good for you. I can remember you know, you're speaking because it, it could. It's just one instance, and sometimes, um, and it might be tougher with the bigger groups. But when I would guide, you know, you get to know the guys. I could almost feel the person that I really thought I better keep my eyes on, or you know, how long you've been hunting. You kind of feel it, and I'll never forget. Uh, years ago, uh, was down in Southwest Iowa with a guy, and and we had uh, Ron Lackshaw. Um, hunting with us, and uh, he had a buddy from Kansas who was the snow goose jumping king in the world. Kenny Thexton was his name, and um, <laughs> and I'll tell you what, we showed up, and Lockshaw was a hoot, man. He was a blast. Of course, we were all hunting out of the uh, Xlanders back then, so you had everything clothes but just your face, you know. And I remember we had this client from Michigan, and he hunted the day before Lockshaw, guided him the day before. I kept telling the kid that was really had the outfitting. I said, dude, I don't feel comfortable with this guy. I mean, I, I, we were having conversations with this guy at dinner, and he's talked about suicide in his past and, and stuff like that. I mean, I feel bad for this guy. He's going, you know, his wife was calling when he was there, wanting to know if he was there. And I mean, dude, I said, this guy, I, I'm going to watch. Well, the next morning, early in the morning, we're setting up, you know, and it's dark. And, and this guy is getting in his Lexlander, and I happen to be, it's dark. And I'm on the right front. I'm at like maybe at one o'clock. Lackshaw's probably at eleven o'clock. And we're we're getting the final decoys, or it could have been setting the speakers. I can't remember. We're snow goose hunting, and I'll never forget in the dark. And all of a sudden, this guy gets in his Xlander and he reaches up to grab his shotgun to pull it back, and his finger was on the trigger. And when he it went. Boom! And all I can remember is this, the percussion. I could feel it running past me and seeing this big orange flame. And, dude, I, I freaked out. I mean, we could have easily been standing, you know, a couple feet, either one of us, 
to the right or the left would have lost would have blown our legs right off and um i actually pulled that guy right out of the blind and walked him to the car you know it's just um that was scary of course if you know lackshaw he was he was just real calm and he looked at me and oh that's not good <laughs> <laughs> no, that was, you know, beep 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 and it just he had that but like you said it's that one time that he had his safety off and reached up and to pull his gun it was dark he was just getting his blind getting set up and you you can't watch everything you know and, and thank god to the good lord that we were lucky but it just takes that one instance and safety is one thing that guiding that i could never try to preach enough to people you know if 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 i mess up on the call and the geese come in and i you know i call a shot too early or, or too late that's on me but you know we were taught from a young age that you know hunter safety that my dad that you know having shotguns and pheasant hunting and squirrel hunting and and learning to take our own guns apart as kids and cleaning them putting them back together and i mean we knew all that and safety was even today, it's still my issue. I double check myself. I'll double check my wife or when we're hunting, you know, hey, safety, safety. It's just, it's just one, it takes that one time. And, and I don't know if you saw on social media, was it last week? They were talking about the hunting accident where they're hunting the water and uh, a kid happened to be out in front getting a, a duck and, and one of the guys in the water uh, shot and didn't know the guy was out there. Oh, we told him to go ahead. The birds came in, I think it was, and he ducked down and told him to shoot. And then uh, raised up, and one of the people shot his head out. I mean, killed him. Terrible. And it's terrible. It's heartbreaking. I'm sure it's heartbreaking for the guy who pulled the trigger. And that's clearly a, a negligence, you know, in that. And I call that on both parts. I mean, God, I feel so bad for the guy who died. But, you know, there's way. I mean, you, I've been out in the water there and, and moving decoys or something. Have birds come in and tell the guys, you know, don't shoot, don't shoot. Or even if the dog's out there, don't shoot. But to tell somebody to shoot over you and go ahead and shoot, man, it's, and like you said, there's, it only takes one time. But that's only one of the things I had for you because I know you hunt with those big groups. And that was always, how do you control the safety aspect of that? And you, you know, like you said, there's, there's been accidents, but you've done a tremendous job of all the years. And you're not, I'm, I'm not trying to jinx you or anything, but you've done <laughs> Yeah. And I think, again, it's from, I keep going back to the internship of the you know, your base of land. You guns were never new to you. You grew up with guns, whether it was guns, pistols, shotguns, rifles. I always remember you had all kinds of guns, you know, that so, and your dad had guns and you guys shot all the time. It wasn't nothing new. It's just, again, today's kids, that's what I'm saying. Um, learning, learning to run a call is only a small aspect of, of becoming a waterfowler. It doesn't make you a waterfowler. It's only a small aspect. Ordering a bunch of stuff from Roger Sporting Goods and having a great trailer looking great is only a small aspect of, of becoming a waterfowler, you know. And um, so if, if you're going to, Bradley, if, if some of these young kids out here today and, and you know, someone's watching and, and you're, they're wanting to get in, they, they've hunted with some buddies and loved it, what would be your best advice for these young guys getting started and, and wanting to get into it and get better and how to get better, you know? Well, George, I mean, we always had a lot of good waterfowlers in southeast Michigan. I mean, like you and Sabota, like you said, I was fortunate enough to get thrown right to the Welsh next to Grounds and Freddie, Zank, and, you know, they were 150 yards down the shoreline, and even you, and, and uh, 
Master Shin and, you know, just a gang. But um, I don't know if I could wake up and buy all that stuff. And, you know, I would, you know, we were about the best in our area. Yeah, we were. And to take out people and charge money, if you're not the best in your area, I, you know, <laughs> hire somebody that's the best. Yep. Brad, that was you said it right there, and and there's no arrogance in that whatsoever, because um, people don't like I said the, the internship and the hours and days and years that you spend in a field. I made a ton of mistakes, and not safety mistakes, but mistakes on you know, oh my gosh, the, some of the blinds and where, sometimes I didn't call the geese right or call the shot. You learn, and but there, you know, you, but I learned from that. And as you go on, and then when you start guiding, you know, when you get to that level that you're become really proficient, not just on and and know how to run a call and how to set a spread, but also how to scout and how to set that spread and 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 how to read birds and know when they're going to fly, and and being uh, being consistent, being successful for yourself is one thing. Then take it to another level that you got to be successful for five or six or eight other people. And everybody, you know, it's one thing that you, you and I could walk in a field and probably two or three volleys and walk out of the field and be done. And because we've done this, this isn't our, Ron Lackshaw's favorite uh, quote was, this isn't my first rodeo. And, um, but today it's, um, you're absolutely right to these, uh, the, to reach that level for me to think that I'm going to take, you had to, like to guide at Knudsen's man, when Sonny Jack approached me, he came to me a year earlier and talked to me. I was the only guy from Michigan. That was guiding for him. Like you said, you had you had ground, you had zinc, and, and you had, uh, oh, Derb. Remember Derbyshire? Oh, yeah. Steve? Do you know he passed away? Was it last year? Mm-hmm. Yep. And we had Foils, and we had uh, Tavner, we had a whole bunch of guys that, you know, and I would say that helped me being around, you know, we were from a certain area, and we knew our area, but then we got infiltrated with some guys from a different part of the country who grew up doing the same thing and i learned a lot from them but it took me to a level higher than what we were and that's the same way with you because these guys were your friends too and like you said you had to compete against these guys and, and you know we were and that was man that was a heyday though man there i don't guess that was, you, can you imagine how many birds that died on that that, that lake there in Lock Aaron and that bay. Can you imagine if they dredged that for lead shot now? <laughs> Back then when we could shoot it? Oh my gosh. <laughs> All the 10 gauge holes and everything is probably in the bottom. They, uh, but man, that we could, that was a, that was a, you seen it, you were there before I was in the yeah. heyday. In fact, um, folks, this was a spot that was uh, a man made lake. Out in the country, had all the perfect settings because it was surrounded by great, rich farm fields that surrounded this thing. It was made that, um, you know, it had bays. It had a, it also had a, a part of the lake that dog lugged out that opened up that was great for roosting big migrations of birds. And then you had the bay end that, you know, you really didn't have to have the wind wasn't a huge effect out there in that bay, you know. And then that was uh, surrounded by crop fields, and those birds could just, and those and, and the migration. It just seems that it was very imprinted back in the day that a lot of migration birds, you know, stopped there. 
And you saw that before I did. And I can remember Grounds telling me years ago, um, I said, Tim, you've hunted all over and had some great goose hunts. I said, Where's, where would you say was some of the best area that you ever goose hunted? Lock Aaron and, and up to Trolls. Without a doubt, he says, because, you know, they came up there. Those geese never seen what those guys saw in southern Illinois, you know. And I can remember when we first got that when Bigfoots first came out. Oh, my gosh. Thaw died and went to heaven. Being with Knutson's there, we all were getting our Bigfoots. And that was the first transition, really, that we, of course, Carolite and, and Flambeau might have had some full bodies. But, you know, Bigfoot was just like that was the upper. I was dri driving the Ferrari when you got your Bigfoots. I still got a 16-foot trailer in a shed full of Bigfoots. No kidding. Yeah. <laughs> now we even got flocked heads, George. I know Bigfoots. We're uptown on them. <laughs> the only part, I remember the only thing used to upset me is with the Bigfoots is that we, I ended up having to drill and put drywall screws in because those leg bases would, you know, you're always trying to get them and get those, and those leg bases would always pop out, you know. We still, we still do it. We, yeah. we actually have a, a, a screw gun party and put them all back together because, I mean, we kick them, throw them, throw them in the trailer. We don't bag anything on a, on a Bigfoot trailer. Right. You know that old term, five pounds in a three-pound sack? That's, <laughs> when you open up the doors, you better get out of the way because it, they're coming. They're all piling out. <laughs> well, you know what? You brought up a good conversation at this point, too. You know, the Bigfoots, and you're still using them. What's your opinion on today's decoys compared to yesteryears, you know, um, evidently you see a lot of value still in the Bigfoots or you wouldn't have a big trailer full of Bigfoots. Do you, is it, is, do you have a, uh, a decoy that you pretty much feel is your top choice or do you think they're all good and they're all going to work for me no matter what? I've been running a lot of the GHGs, uh, the fully flopped, I got about 30, 40 dozen of those, and we do bag those every day. Um, I still like the Bigfoots because if you need a, you know, we're, we're not chasing four or 500 geese. We're chasing 10, 15, 30,000 Canadians in, in a feed. And if you're going out there with the same setup and blowing the same call, doing the same stuff, your kill rate's here, and then it slowly starts to fall. I mean, I have. 50, 75 dozen silhouettes. I mean, a lot of them are real geese. And, you know, just sometimes you got to give them a different look. Yep. Absolutely. A different presentation. You know, you talk about that. I don't forget uh, years ago back in Tecumseh, I was one of the first ones. I remember you and your dad come out there sitting in the driveway of my sister's house watching me and Zaboda laying in freaking Tyvek suits and laying on, we thought we were freaking nuts, laying on some styrofoam. Um, yeah. But we had great fields, and those geese weren't used to being hunted, but that Red Mill Pond stayed open. And when Manchester froze out and Celine froze out, we, we got dumped with thousands of birds that landed there. And, of course, we had right there at my brother-in-law's, you know, that was a field that was right on the border of the city limits. It all depended if we had a west wind or east wind. I also had, uh, man, I'm, I went to school with a kid. I forgot about his dad's farm on the east side. So... Depending on the wind, we had both fields, and and there, that, each field was bordered to the city limits. So you were getting the first look. And back in the early days, man, we when those birds would lock and come, they would finish. There was just you know it was about it was all about feed and 
and we didn't overdo it. We didn't overcall it. We were just whatever it took just to get when they started locking up and finishing. You just, you know, Wendell Carlson, you say in his old tape, put put the call in your pocket, boy, and let the birds come. And um, later on, when the pressure got going and more people, Sabo and I happened to be uh, over on the east field one day, and here we are all Bigfoots laying in, in, in uh, final approach blinds. And them friggin' geese were coming out and, and do they act like they were going to eat you up and then swing about 100 yards out, 80 yards, swing around. And we'd, might, we'd pull maybe one or two off because we were calling hard, but they go over to the other guy. There'd be guys in the other field. They wouldn't get them. They'd go over here, bang, bang. And then they go, they were going to this huge cornfield, and I can't remember that guy's name. They, it was yearly, every time he had corn, he didn't allow hunting, but it, it held the birds in the area. I like that. But uh, I remember Sabo and I were talking at work one day, and he, he said, dude, what's, what do you think is going on? I said, well, dude, look at it. Everybody's using the same decoys now. We're all, everybody's using a layout blind now. And I said, hell, we probably talked to those, those guys about how to run a short read. They're, everybody's running the short read. They're seeing the same thing. They're feeling more comfortable going to a field not seeing anything. And um, so we at that time, I think we had – 18 dozen outlaws together that Freddie got for us back when Jim Cripes had the outlaw out of Washington. And I said, you know what? Let's go out tonight. Because I always had mixed feelings back then with the silhouettes. There wasn't a lot of education. It was a lot of trial and error. You know that back then. And I wasn't really big. What I noticed when we hunted around Trolls up there, we mixed them with the Bigfoots. And I saw mixed results with mixing silhouettes and the Bigfoots in full body. So I kind of just pulled the silhouettes out thought we were better off with with just the full bodies and uh, so anyway i says you know what let's just take all our silhouettes and no full bodies and just set those silhouettes out not saying that they're better or anything else it was just it was the same field same geese same guys laying out all that but we it was bloody dude they came into us like they had never been hunted we just we shot our limit quick and uh it, it was the different presentation and I can remember um, up there at Fay Lake, in Man up in Manchester, uh, one of the fields that Sonny Jackson had. He had two or three pits in that field. And uh, I had a, a group of guys, and uh, Freddie had, and Freddie and his dad, old man Fred, were hunting the field north of us, northwest, the other pit. And they were in the same field, but in the other pit. And at that time, man, Freddie had just did an article for, with Jim Kreitz about the outlaw silhouette. And, and uh, guys that came in the store that morning, how the clients would all hook up, you know. And, and uh, they were all asking Freddie about the silhouettes and what he thought. And he said, they're, they're going to be the new best thing coming out. And uh, that morning, I, I had two dozen Bigfoots that I set out in front of our pit. And I looked up on the hill there, and Freddie had 20 or 25 dozen outlaws. That he set out, and I mean that freaking pit looked black. And those guys looking at me he says, "Wow, look how!" You know, I'm like, "Oh yeah, yeah, he's got a lot of decoys." You know, you know what? We were the only ones that pulled the trigger that day in killing geese. Yeah. We just crunched them, and we did have some. I guess Fred said he had. Some, they never pulled a shot, never shot. And um, he said a couple times they the, when we tore into them boom, 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 that there were some geese flying to them. But we kept shooting, and the geese pulled off. We, of course, we didn't see that because we were busy shooting. But you know, it's just um, even today, uh, silhouettes to me was was a tool. It was a tool that I was going to use in the late season, just like the flute call when we did our first flute calls. When Trevor Shanahan worked for me, Trevor turned some, and uh, I liked the flute. 
I like the sound of the flute. And I used the flute mainly in that late season, especially down there in Monroe and Erie. They're off of the Hunt Clubs. Joe Robinson, I mean, all the, he, he had all the good fields around there. and um, But the fields that I would hunt, I was taking some of the guys from the Hunt Club. Joe would be over in that prime spot with Freddie and all them. We were out shooting them, and it was just me running the flute. And that day I hunted with Joe uh, one day over there. And I said, just let me try the flute run this flute and, and see how those birds and it truly made a believer to him not again trying to say that was any better it was just it sounds like a goose and it's a total different pitch and totally different what everybody what they were hearing through that whole season you know and i don't think uh, again like you're talking that you have the creativity that we created as young hunters still goes to me today I'm always thinking maybe sometimes I outthink myself, but I'm always, you know, if it works good, that's good. It's good for that day. But I'm looking for, like you said, I look for tomorrow. I look for the, the day after that and birds, these birds today, I think are a high quality, high definition, different bird that are, are adapting quicker. They learn because the ones that don't adapt do die. And um, she's like, like the old fairy. I mean, back to back pheasant honey. My dad would say, you know, uh, we'd pull up, cut the lab loose, and at the end of the 40-acre field, right at daybreak, the pheasants would be taken off. And I went, Dad, why? We, we, we didn't even step in there. And we, uh, you told me not to slam the car door. And, then he, you know, we'd walk through the field, and a couple of them would jump up. We'd kill our four birds. And he'd look at me and goes, son, we, we're genetically changing the pheasant in Michigan. Absolutely. I go, what do you mean? Why? He goes, the smart ones, one, they fly. The, the others shit. The runners get to reproduce. The ones that shit die. They don't get to reproduce. 100%. 100%, dude. Well, folks, that concludes our first half of our podcast with Brad Allback. This is the George Lynch Hunting Podcast brought to you by Legendary Gear. The game call company is legend by design. Be sure to stay tuned next week for the second part of my interview with Brad Allback. Well, I'll be out there rain shining All a part of the great design Bring it on, I can never get enough Because that's what legends are made of